Hello, I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. Today, we're bringing you part two of our three-part series on the Dorothea Puente case, requested by listener Maddie. Thanks, Maddie. Last episode, we went through the life and crimes of Dorothea Puente up through the fall of 1987 as we approached her evil zenith. Part two, we begin in the spring of 1988 with a bunch of things you won't believe and then that time someone actually called the goddamn police. In our final installment next week, we will end this horrible saga with a holiday surprise for you and Nick, something I've never done on this pod before and hopefully won't be in bad taste. Man, the freaking uh, expectations are all-time high. Like, Are you going to try to speak backwards or what can you do? You know, I just am like, what is this going to be? Is it going to be like a quiz show or something? I won't tell you. The sources for this episode are the excellent book Disturbed Ground by Carla Morton. I would highly recommend it. Uh, Puente versus Mitchell from Case Text. The Life and Deaths of Dorothea Puente by Martin Coos for Sacktown Magazine. Also a great long form article. Sacktown. <laughs> And like I said last time, extensive reporting from the Sacramento Bee. I know that's not how I should be uh, referencing it, but I would say probably 40 to 50 articles from the 1980s that I'm not going to say. If you really want to know, I'll send you all my links and I'll look like a crazy, (laughs) you know, that Charlie Day thing where it's like a crazy... uh, map with a string attaching everything there'll uh-huh. be links there but you're mm-hmm. gonna have to find okay find what you're looking for <laughs> all right we get into this let's yeah, do it all right great hit me with the thing all right this is a true story involving murder violence drugs adult themes etc so if any listeners are like nick and they don't want to hear about those kind of things go listen to a different podcast oh i forgot to say <laughs> Uh, more than likely, we're at like 99% likely part three is available now on the Patreon and Spotify exclusive feed. So if you want early access to part three, I knew you had something to say. I was like, what? I I was was like, get on with it, Muriel. Wow. (laughs) Let's speed this up. Okay. What's the next thing I say? The next thing I say is that sometimes we joke and sometimes we curse Mm -hmm. and sometimes people hate that. So if you're one of those people, turn us off. All right, Nikki, are you ready to hear this story? No. Okay. Let's get started. Alvaro Gonzalez Montoya had been living on the floor of the Volunteers of America Detox Center in Sacramento for years. The shelter was meant to be transitional. It was just mats on a concrete floor for folks from Skid Row to come in and detox. And afterwards, they were usually sent somewhere cleaner and safer to get sober. But you couldn't get into any other facility in Sacramento without a valid ID. So while Alvaro Montoya, or Bert, as he was called, was totally sober, he was stuck in limbo at the detox center. He had no ID, no social security number, birth certificate, no paperwork. In fact, for the first three years that he lived at the detox center, no one even knew he spoke fluent English. Mm. Bert was in his early 50s, and by... Most accounts he had some mild intellectual disability and suffered from hallucinations and mental illness. And while at times there were some communication barriers, he was largely sweet, soft-spoken, and good-natured. And he ended up being just a really a darling of the shelter. People just gravitated towards him, loved to take care of him. Well, that's probably why they also were like, okay, you can continue to stay here. Yeah, totally, totally. And in 1986, after years of sleeping on the concrete floor, Bert's well-being became the pet project 
of a well-meaning VOA worker. And that's Volunteers of America worker. Mm-hmm. Judy Moise was a street counselor for the Volunteers of America Courtesy Outreach Program. She was middle-aged, having divorced about a decade earlier. And Judy got into social work after her older son had a mental health crisis and committed suicide, and her younger son had a psychotic break just two weeks later. So they had... Tragedy hit the family really hard. Basically, her younger son was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And right away, she tried to position herself as his advocate. And through her experience with that, she found that mental health services in Sacramento back then, even for people with a little money and resources, were just horrible. Her son got way worse his mental health got way worse in state facilities and then they went broke trying to afford medication and private hospitals and he ended up being placed in these really super scary halfway houses like places that were dirty or violent right Mm -hmm. yeah so judy started volunteering in different mental health services and facilities just to try to offset the cost of navigating the system as a way to sort of help her figure out how to get the best out of this this wonky system and long story short at the time and i don't know if if that's still a thing but at the time organizations were looking to hire these sort of lay social workers so people who didn't need formal education who acted as intermediaries and were hands-on in the streets connecting people with resources so just like judy did with her son and his friends so people Mm -hmm. who just like hey are you okay go over here this is a soup kitchen i can get you into this you know hotel it's great work amazing yeah yeah i'd actually love to do that yeah and with all this experience judy was able to take a position with Volunteers of America, and that's where she met Bert Montoya. Judy Moise spent Judy Moise spent two years searching for Bert's identity, and for the longest, just due to Bert's tendency to mumble, they didn't even know his real name. Uh-huh. Everyone thought he was Alberto Montoya, not Alvaro Montoya. And that's actually where the nickname Bert came from. Anyway, Bert was fuzzy on his immigration status and his past in general. He'd lived most of his life in the U.S., but he had no idea whether or not he was a U.S. citizen or had a social security number. But when they finally found out Bert's real name, Judy was able to track down Bert's birth certificate to Costa Rica and found he had actually entered the country legally in New Orleans as a child back in 1962. It was the absolute best case scenario. Bert had a social security number and was legally entitled to benefits and could end his years of sleeping on mats on concrete floors. And now they could find Bert a real home. But they find her, but they go to take her to Dorothy. Dorothea Puente, (laughs) the serial killer that everyone knows is up to no good. On the positive side, Bert was sober and very gentle and sweet. On the negative side, Bert refused to take his prescribed antipsychotics, which made him ineligible for most boarding houses. He also had diabetes and he had some issues with lingering tuberculosis. So he needed medical care or at least someone with an eye towards medical care who could help him manage medications and appointments. Mm -hmm. So through St. Paul's Senior Center, they were put in touch with fellow street counselor Peggy Nickerson, who had the perfect place, a small homey boarding house ran by a compassionate woman who had a who was a, a soft touch for the harder cases a lady with street smarts and medical training la doctora who treated her tenants like family man i was thinking after editing part one i'm like is peggy in on it is that why dorothea doesn't get convicted because peggy was 
was doing it. It's great that you asked me questions you know I won't answer. In February 1988, mm-hmm. when Judy and her partner Beth pulled up to the Blue and White Victorian on 1426 F Street in the VOA van, they were enchanted. The yard was lush and green. There was a vegetable garden out back with flowers and a cute little Catholic shrine out front. It was absolutely charming. Dorothea Puente met them on the neat white front porch wearing a house dress dotted with little flowers, her white hair and curlers, and oops, she had forgot to put in her teeth. Her mouth was puckered into a pout. She was darling. (laughs) First, Dorothea took them on a tour of the upstairs Dorothea's flat was tidy and smelled like home-cooked food. She served a huge lumberjack breakfast every morning at 5.30 a.m. and an early family-style dinner in the late afternoon. She had already gotten a head start on dinner that day. Pots of gravy simmered in a cast-iron skillet full of thick, sizzling hamburgers popped nearby. The walls were covered (laughs) in pictures of Jesus Every shelf was covered in doilies and glass figurines all surrounding the big table where they all ate breakfast and dinner as a family. Dorothea parked everyone in the parlor for a get-to-know-you chat. Through chuckles and sighs, she told them all about her life as a 70-year-old (laughs) Mexican-American World War II veteran, a nurse and philanthropist who the locals affectionately called La Doctora, a woman who didn't run a boarding house for the money. A woman who ran a boarding house for the love. Her tenants were her family, and that's the way she liked it. Dorothea took the ladies downstairs to the boarding room. Small and kind of cheap looking, but clean, with good beds and TVs in every room. Even like a communal fridge for the snacks for the guys to use downstairs. It was perfect. And when Bert toured the space, Dorothea showed him around, patting him on the back and clucking at him in Spanish. And Bert just like totally fell in love. And over the next few weeks, when Judy came to visit, she saw Bert transformed. Dorothea rubbed cream into his scalp and cured his chronic psoriasis he had like always had flakes everywhere mm. and she totally cured it she dressed him in clean clothes he she sized up his shirts to kind of modestly cover his belly that had was always hanging out she got him new shoes she told him to stop talking to the devil and she got him back on his antipsychotics she made him special mexican dinner she took him to church and she followed him around fussing his clothes and patting his hair and notoriously quiet Bert like even started getting a little chatty he was surprising Judy with the occasional like hi how are you Judy oh the no first this time. is so sad this I know is so I know. sad and Judy's just like trying hard to help because she just came from this like tragic circumstances and she's just grasping onto everything she can to like do better and then th- this is gonna be the thing and we haven't even found Bert's body yet from part one, right? He's still missing as of the end of part one. Yeah. Right? He was not one of the names you mentioned in terms of people they found buried in the backyard, right? We're just going to keep going. So Dorothy got to work setting up Bert with his social security payments, his government benefits checks. And even though his payments hadn't started coming in yet, she set him up with a cash allowance, enough to go to the bar next door for burritos and beer. So it turns out Bert's sobriety was more dependent on cash than preference. But okay. That, that was okay. Fine. That's, you know, he was kicking it. You know. On March 31st, Dorothea took Bert Montoya into the Social Security Administration office in Sacramento and told him he was her mentally disabled cousin, And that he wanted to designate her as the payee for his SSI checks. The Social Security Administration thoroughly vetted Bert and his claim, checking over every single detail. But for some reason, at the time, it was not part of protocol to vet Dorothea in any way. So the request was approved and the checks were now made payable to Dorothea and sent to her every month starting in June. 
Bert was now regularly taking his antidepressants and antipsychotics and medicated for his diabetes. He was clean shaven, fresh and bathed, well fed, and Dorothea was managing every aspect of his life. In the spring of 1988, Dorothea Puente's boarding house was bustling. There was the usual stream of like transients filtering in and out and staying temporarily before moving on to something else. And then there were the mainstays. So in addition to Bert Montoya, who is now Dorothea's new golden child, there were four other men. So there was John McCauley. We've mentioned him before. He's the one that was questioned by the police when Bert showed up missing. No. So oh. John McCauley, um, but good, good years. He is the one of the very first tenants from 1986. He's been there the longest. Mm-hmm. He's a very pickled dude. He's um, always kind of drunk and then always very mean, right? Forever blasted and then just like a disciple of Dorothea's, right? Mm-hmm. Very much in her court. He still kept his prized position in an upstairs room. So he's like one of the only people who doesn't sleep downstairs. Mm-hmm. By now, he had graduated to supervising all of the convicts' work in the backyard digging holes. And John McCauley was sort of, in in some ways, like Dorothea's unofficial number two around the boarding house and a big bully. A lot of people just avoided him. Okay, and he's the one disposing all these bodies? He's got his hands dirty. (laughs) Are we considering him? He never got in trouble for anything. Uh Uh-huh. Suspected? Yes. But he never got in trouble for anything. Uh, well, it sounds like no one got in trouble for anything. <laughs> we're, we're going to get to all of that, okay? Uh, home, there was a guy named Homer Myers who took up a room, and he was just like an older, elderly guy. He was pretty much deaf, so he just nodded and smiled. That guy just kind of uh-huh. floated around. And then there was John Sharp. So that's the person okay. you were thinking of, right? Sharp came to Dorothea in January 1988 after having back surgery. He was in his mid-60s, but unlike the other boarders, he was sharp as a tack because his main thing was gambling. He wasn't a drinker. He was dead sober. He just liked to piss his money away. Couldn't really help it, right? Uh Early on, Sharp loved Dorothea. She wired him up with like free cable in his room, Bought him a recliner so he could relax with his bad back. You know, he was a bitter boo. He was not impressed with the other boarders. He could not stand John McCauley. And he kept to himself. But he did remember when he got a new neighbor in March of 1988. John Sharp shared a wall with the new guy, Ben Fink for about two months starting in March 9th of 1988. So Ben Fink was in his 50s and drinking himself to death. He had been an alcoholic since his teens and homeless for most of his life. And at this point, Fink was permanently disabled from frostbite and being hit by cars. This has happened a couple times to him after drunkenly wandering out in the street. So he had to walk with a cane. And he had actually tried to get sober many times, going to countless rehabs throughout his life, but nothing really stuck for him. And as he developed more health problems and became more vulnerable, he came to the attention of street counselor Peggy Nickerson at St. Paul's, who introduced him to Dorothea Puente. And when Ben Fink and his brother Robert toured Puente's boarding house, Fink's brother was really hopeful. It seemed like a nice place way nicer than any place he had seen his brother in in a long time. So John Sharp remembered the Fink brothers in particular. He didn't interact much with Ben Fink, who was in an alcoholic fog at all hours of the day, but he shared cigarettes with his brother Robert when Robert visited each week and thought Robert was an all right guy. Uh Robert Fink visited his brother each week for six weeks until the end of April. And then shortly after Robert Fink stopped visiting his brother, Dorothea's newest tenant, Ben Fink, disappeared. And John Sharp had his first strange experience with his kind landlady. So like we said, John Sharp shared a thin bedroom wall with Ben Fink and could hear the cycles of Fink 
drinking away his benefits checks. So when the checks came in, you know, he'd have a little money and he'd be staggering drunk for the first week or so. And then that would taper off until the next check came in again. Well, like clockwork toward the end of April, John Sharp could hear Ben's cycle begin again. And he heard Ben Fink crash drunkenly against the back door, rattle his keys, stagger into the house and enter his room, giving up gravity onto the bed, lights out, right? Later in the night, though, John Sharp saw something for the first time. He caught little Dorothea Puente sneaking through the downstairs hallway in the dark outside his room like a weirdo. And when he caught her, she froze. And she told John Sharp that Ben Fink wasn't feeling well and she was taking him upstairs to the back bedroom to make him feel better. After that, days went by and John Sharp realized that the room next door was silent. John Sharp had never asked about another tenant before. That's not the kind of guy he was. And it felt strange to start now. And Dorothea had never offered any information. So John Sharp just sort of let it be. Four days later, John Sharp went upstairs to use the telephone. And as he passed the guest bedroom where Dorothea said he she had taken Ben Fink, he was hit with an unbelievable stink. Dorothea walked by, you know, appearing out of the ether like a vampire bat. And <laughs> the stench fumes and, yeah, Charlie Brown style. Right. And casually mentioned, oh, the sewer has been backed up. It ruined the carpet in the guest room. And that night, John Sharp lay in bed, listening to the mechanical thumping of about a dozen repeated carpet shampoos above his head. And he did some thinking. He had worked in a mortuary in the Midwest for years. He knows what those bodies smell like. He knows what a decomposing body smelled like. And that was the smell of a decomposing body. But he thought, you know, on the off chance, if I'm wrong, if it's the sewer, I'm going to be homeless again. Because if I get the money, I'm going to gamble it away, right? Yeah. And he's like, you know, there's always the possibility that, you know, he might be wrong because the thing is, it would be completely insane if I was right, right? If she was just keeping a dead body in the bedroom with all the people in the house, like that would be the insane thing if I was right, right? right? So in the end, John Sharp decided to just mind his own business. After 12 carpet shampoos with a rented industrial shampoo machine, Dorothea decided to cut her losses and had her inmate crew rip the carpet out of the guest bedroom and replace it. On April 29th, Dorothea Puente bought 12 bags of cement. In late May, the stink from her property was so bad, her neighbors called the health department and the department sent out an inspector who couldn't find the source of the smell. In June, Dorothea had her inmate crew dig a large man-sized hole in front of the metal shed they'd built in the fall of the previous year. A couple days later, when they returned, Dorothea had them fill the hole back up. There was some carpet in the hole. She said it was a pile of garbage. And several weeks later, She had the inmate crew pour cement over the ground in front of the shed and under the gazebo. The crew noticed both areas smelled incredibly bad. Ben Fink's body was later found in the hole in front of the shed. Later that summer, when Peggy Nickerson came to check up on Ben Fink, Dorothea told her she'd kicked him out for being too drunk and he'd gone back up north somewhere. And that seemed totally plausible to Peggy Nickerson. She had assumed Ben Fink had moved on. Dorothea Puente ended up cashing over $6,000 worth of Ben Fink's benefit checks after his disappearance. Mm. This is, she just, 
who's helping her do who's helping her move the bodies who muriel <laughs> tell me right now ruin all the hard work you did to make this interesting and just who how who tell me One, you two, really want to know me you really want to know you want me to tell you i think so it was never solved nobody knows does she does she does she does she ever go to jail for anything Besides, like, parole violations? I'm not going to tell you that. Because we have a whole section about the trial, and it's really interesting. Okay. Man. This whole thing is actually really interesting. The setting of this house and all the politics and social dynamics of all the borders. Yeah. It's it's super crazy. Yeah. it's It's really specific and interesting to think about. Yeah. It's a really... It's it's so... It it's just such a really crazy story. Um, all right, so like we said, uh-huh. Dorothea Puente was at her evil zenith by this point, and she had her routine down perfectly. Up before dawn, she was notorious for being up at like four a.m. to do her gardening, and then fantasy breakfast served at five thirty for the people who got up early enough to eat it: bacon, eggs pancakes hash browns the works if i was any one of these guys like if a couple of things went a little sideways for me i ended up in one of these houses my ass would get out of bed and eat that breakfast and then go back to sleep oh for sure i would definitely yeah. be downstairs at 5 30 for that i don't know if i'd be up for the day in fact i know i would not be <laughs> i'd be right next to that bar getting beer and burritos okay anyways uh and then after serving breakfast she got to play nurse ratchet bossing around with medication rounds and appointment reminders and then afterwards she got dressed to the nines to do her errands about town what is it uh what freak in the streets freak in the sheets what oh lady in the streets freak in the sheets <laughs> that has nothing to do with this anyway, anyway well she was no she's a lady in the streets and a fucking killer yeah on the carpet right or whatever. Yeah, yeah so while she was soft and homey at the boarding house when dorothea went out to do her shopping she was in full makeup pumps color-coded outfits. She took taxis everywhere in a cloud of perfume, and she tipped heavy. Sundays in particular were fun days. Dorothea would add her fanciest jewelry to her ensemble and catch a cab to the Cathedral of the Blessed Sacrament. She would take a holy step out of the taxi and then make a beeline to one of the bars around the corner instead of going some, to church to, to, to do some blessed day drinking instead of going to church that girl did not go to church that's of course she didn't and honestly from what i can tell from reading since breakfast started strictly at 5 30 every morning uh-huh. and chores were usually done early enough the Dorothea could get blasted and tell stories about being a retired surgeon yeah, yeah. who did movies with Rita Hayworth and still get home to put dinner on the table whenever she felt like it. Yeah. Like at, at her favorite neighborhood spot, which was the Clarion hotel bar, they all knew her as an eccentric retired doctor, or at least a lot of them knew her for a good laugh. Like she was known in the bar scene yeah. out there. And I think, as far as I can tell, I think a lot of that was day drinking. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. And, you know, I'm not knocking it. You know, that's her life or whatever. I mean, she's a terrible person. Well, she, I'm yeah, knocking I mean, her. <laughs> I'm not trying to be like, what? But, you yeah, know, yeah. I was like, it is funny to think like, oh, everyone has to have breakfast at 530. Yeah. Because I'm going to go out and get I need to lit. be drinking by 10. <laughs> and I'm going to be like cooking all of the dinner at like 11. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> it's like if you go to sleep early. Then start drinking early. I mean, whatever it is, she gets everything done so early. Yeah, it's only day drinking if you then stay up, you know, all night long. If you just drink and then go to sleep early, then you're just, it's you know what I'm saying? It's yeah, all relative. you're just drinking. It's all relative, yeah. right? Well, I don't know. All right. But just as it seemed like Dorothea Puente would never be caught, you know, she was just Slippery as a pig goaded in Teflon with rockets strapped to its legs. Yet another specter from her past came forward to warn the people 
who were currently wrapped up in her bullshit. Uh-huh. This was a whole thing, okay? But we're trying to keep this story manageable time-wise. So this is the very brief version. Okay. There are these two veteran social workers who'd been working in Sacramento for years. And in late May, early June, one of them had this client who was kicked out of Dorothea's boarding house. And that social worker called Dorothea to see what happened. They, they had heard these mixed you know, stories. And Dorothea screamed at her, cussing and acting wild AF. So that's pretty not normal for the proprietor of a boarding house to do. Yeah. They're not really supposed to do that. It's very unhinged. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And the social worker got on the phone and was like, well, what? <laughs> I think she's murdering people. Well, no. And she got to thinking, that's pretty crazy. Wait a minute. I remember talking to another unhinged Dorothea, right? Uh-huh. This other unhinged Dorothea she had worked with in the past, one that she thinks went to jail back in 1982. <laughs> so she starts playing this game of telephone between all these different social workers who knew of a Dorothea back in like the 60s or 70s. And remember, you know, Dorothy used a lot of aliases and she switched between four husbands' yeah. last names, right, right? Right, right, And all these chicks start realizing it was likely that this Dorothea might be the same Dorothea who got in trouble for forging government benefit checks back in 78. They can mm-hmm. all kind of agree that that might be the same person. Yeah. And the social worker who Dorothea cussed out was also vaguely aware of her charges from the early 80s relating to drugging and robbing elderly clients. So that was a little more like peripheral. Uh She also happened to know, personally happened to know Judy Moist, the street counselor working with Burt Montoya, who she knew was currently living with Dorothea. And so... The social worker and her partner, because a lot of them used to work in partners, decided to set up a meeting with Judy Moise and Judy Moise's partner, Beth, at the Volunteers of America office to just try to talk to her and yeah, say, see, what's going on? You've been over to that house? Have what's you it been like? to that house? Yeah, I think sure. I know, you know, I what's going on? I want to talk to you about your client. So the veteran social workers go <laughs> and they basically like, word vomit this whole scenario okay uh-huh. so they're like there's this dorothea and she's been terrorizing sacramento since the early 1970s maybe jo- dorothea johansson and she and dorothea puente might be the same person and she would be robbing people and stealing their checks and drugging them in bars with paralytics and putting people in the hospital with abusive over-medication. And, you know, back in the 1970s, she was 200 pounds. And she had black hair. And she used to wear these moo-moos. You know, and she'd be in her 50s now. And, you know, an ex-con on federal probation. She cussed me out when I called her last week. Uh-huh. Total nutball, right? So they pitched this version of Dorothea to Judy Moise. And, you know, she just absolutely doesn't believe it right uh-huh. like 200 pounds black hair moo's, like right this lady's 75 <laughs> she's like 70 something years old she's not in her 50 she's just like a straight up little old lady there's no way this can be the same person and at the end of this conversation you know judy moise is just like you guys are just wrong right they're at this impasse Judy Moise is immovable. This has to be a mistake. Her Dorothea Puente is not evil Dorothea from the 1970s, right? Uh-huh. There, it's always the evil Dorothea, guys. I know. You it's just always have to remember evil. that. Okay, but this is all pre-internet, right? Okay, right. But now, internet or no internet, no one is is righteous okay well, everyone is evil all right so it's all pre-internet so all the social workers could sort of do to prove their point all they feel like they can do to prove their point uh-huh. was to promise to track down a copy of an old article from sacramento magazine detailing the scope of dorothea's crimes and send it to judy moist when they have the time right that's the best they could do 
And the social workers, they did leave Judy with one parting shot. They just say, get Bert out now. Mm-hmm. Don't leave him there because this is a bad, bad news. And they kind of say, you know, send him to this other house. And Judy Moist knows this other boarding house and knows it's bad. Yeah. So they're kind of like, you guys are out of touch. Uh-huh. You're the social, like the, oh, you're the Oh, you went to school worker. for this. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so like they're like you're out of touch we're not you're doing elite, that elitist social workers I, I, with your degrees it does seem like a vibe but like they're like no you guys are out of touch we're not doing that hilarious so frustrated with their conversation with Judy Moyes the social workers didn't want to give up they decided to go to St. Paul's to talk to our old friend street counselor Peggy Nickerson who they heard was play, you know was placing people with Dorothea uh-huh. hand over fist. So they they told Peggy the same story about Dorothea, longtime scourge of Sacramento, and got pretty much the same result: complete rejection and disbelief. So, in a last ditch effort, one of the social workers, Polly Spring, started writing letters to higher ups in the social working world to raise the alarms. She believed wholeheartedly these multiple Dorotheas were one Dorothea and she was back on the scene unchecked and scarier than ever. The first letter she wrote was to her supervisor in early June and Polly basically was like, look man, this Dorothea chick is back running an unlicensed facility. Peggy Nickerson is up at St. Paul. She's literally feeding her homeless elderly clients. I don't know what our responsibility is and I don't actually know the extent of what Dorothea was ultimately charged with, like legally. I knew her from the 70s when she was stealing government checks. I think she went to prison for more serious charges in the 80s, but I don't know the specifics. Yeah. I told everyone what I know. No one cares. Please advise. So Polly's supervisor went up the chain, like two more supervisors, and they decided to report Dorothea Puente to the community care licensing department. So this is basically the department that licenses boarding houses. So cool, cool, right? Dorothea is going to get shut down. Great. (laughs) Well, that uh, agent from that agency came and did a tour with Dorothea Puente, charming old lady, and concluded... There was no boarding house at all. She had nothing to do with the downstairs. She was just a little lady living alone. Dorothea totally snow-jobbed this agent. Snow-jobbed? Yeah, I think that's a thing. That's a hilarious way to say that. Snowballed? No, no, no. Snow-jobbed? That's like when you totally like... Lie, like you tricked them like you lied to them and man she did a good ass job snow jobbing <laughs> well she totally tricked this agent from this community care licensing department yeah and this agent like is like oh you're i'm so sorry and she writes up this report and states that the claims against dorothea puente were completely unsubstantiated and like that we're so sorry to bother you and it right? was just a house yeah that you were renting the upstairs, the people downstairs, she has no idea who they are. They're just people that live down there. I'm just a little old lady. I don't know why they're accusing me of this. I'm so confused. Help me, help me. And the lady, the, she just wrote <laughs> up a report being like, She's absolutely. a good ass liar, man. She'd be snow jobbing everybody. Yeah. At the time, Dorothea had a full boarding house minus the murder room. The community care licensing department representative finished her report, though she did her due diligence she finished her report with interviewing St. Paul's Peggy Nickerson. Mm-hmm. So Peggy Nickerson's like, yeah, obviously it's a boarding house. I send people there all the time. Well, while this agent goes over and she's like, pulls out her report. She's like, I did a whole house inspection, but I just wanted to double check with you because mm-hmm. I know you've been placing people here. Uh, what's up with Dorothea Puente? And in that moment, Peggy Nickerson decided to tell a series of little white lies. In Peggy Nickerson's mind, Dorothea had helped so many people, she couldn't bear to see the community lose such an important resource. I mean, by this point, she'd placed almost 20 people with Dorothea. So Peggy just said, yeah, Dorothea just 
runs this temporary shelter at her own cost, out of the goodness of her heart. You know, people only stay there a couple days at a time. She doesn't run a boarding house at all. It's just a place like a crash pad for people to stay. So in the early summer of 1988, it was determined Dorothea Puente was not running the type of facility that required a license, and she wasn't in violation of anything. Since they didn't have any evidence of wrongdoing on Dorothea's part, there were no legal violations, and it was determined by officials that she wasn't running a boarding facility, Polly Spring was told to drop the whole thing and back off. No one even considered contacting the parole board regarding this inquiry into Dorothea Puente, dipping her toe into at least, I don't know, like some kind of boarding house. Like, you know, it's almost like the terms of your parole is like, you can't drink alcohol. And they're like, okay, cool, cool, cool. I'm just going to work in this brewery and drink non-alcoholic beer and like taste it. But I'll use a spit bucket. Yeah, right. Like your parole officer's like, sir. <laughs> you know? like you're just boofing that booze directly <laughs> up your ass. <laughs> Man, what was I going to say? Something. This is one of those ones where your, your blood just starts to boil. Oh, this is what I was going to say. What? I think... That if I was in, if this was my life and I was Polly in this, I think I would try to hire a private detective. Yeah, right. Or something. Yeah. I you mean, know, she doesn't just, have any money. I know, yeah. I know. And like, of course it's expensive, but like, you know, it would just be like, or do your own sleuthing or something. Like, I don't know if you were really convinced, you know, that like, I think this is her, like that's her, you know? Yeah, but I mean, like, you could probably lose your job. They're like, you're mm-hmm. harassing this lady. You know, I mean, they're like, back off. You're being weird. Yeah. So back at Volunteers of America, Bert's street counselor friend, Judy Moise, was still a little shook up about these rumors surrounding Dorothea, right? So Judy decided to go over to the blue and white Victorian on F Street to have a chat with Dorothea in her sweet little parlor and try to figure out just if she ever went under the name Dorothea Johansson. No, oh, that's not. Oh, that's a real smooth way to do it. I know. I'm listening. <laughs> the, I that, feel bad. I'm like criticizing these social workers I know, for like I know, missteps and being dumb or whatever. I know, I know. But they're also trying to be good. Well, then, I think. But maybe that. See, maybe that's the thing. Maybe they weren't. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. Right. Knows? So then you go. And, well, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. You're just telling the story. I mean, maybe I'm a huge shithead. Who knows? So then. Uh, Okay, so she says. So oh. she goes in. Judy. So Judy goes in the parlor. Yeah. And she opens up with something like, "Gee, Dorothea, you sure don't look Mexican." <laughs> Which don't say that to anybody. Don't say that to people. <laughs> anyway, I guess her point was like Dorothea has a really fair complexion, so she was trying to say like, "Oh, are you ethnically Mexican, or are you, uh, you know, pulling a Rachel Dolezal?" Yeah. It's like clunky Columbo over here trying to be slick. (laughs) This is why you hire a detective or something. (laughs) Or at least someone who took an improv class or two. As a biracial person, I was just like, I was reading this because she was interviewed for this book and I was like, oh my God. (laughs) Uh, Back in the days, that was like a very good, like hardball question. Well, that's how they kind of present it in the book too. And I'm just like, oh my God. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so, but she's in there, she's grilling her about her last names Uh and eventually... She just straight straight up says, you know, like, so, well, what was your maiden name? And Dorothea takes a big pause and she says, Johansson, Uh which was a lie. That was her second husband's name. But it's enough to knock the wind out of Judy and, you know, spur her to track down that Sacramento magazine article the social workers promised her would detail Dorothea's crimes, right? Uh-huh. So she's like, okay, so there is this connection. Sure. Okay. So unfortunately, the article was photocopied in a hurry and it was missing the first page. And that already kind of made it really confusing. And the villain of the article, supposedly Dorothea Johansson, was listed under the pseudonym Eleonora Anderson. So it was already kind of confusing. Like it uh-huh. was Dorothea 
under a different name, listed under a pseudonym, they think, and they're like, okay, so is that who it's supposed mm-hmm. to be? And Judy Moyes also read the article in a bouncy van on the way to yet another work crisis. She, she was a little distracted. And the article had a dramatic flair to it. And in the end, the whole thing, the whole thing seems too cartoonishly evil to be real like this creepy figure poisoning bedridden old ladies in their beds just like couldn't possibly be Dorothea Puente and the Mm -hmm. names were kind of confusing and there was also like some other articles mixed in like chopped in and they were like wait so does this have anything to do with it (laughs) was it like Jackson Pollock doing this I think it was like you know how they say the article continued on page 46 you know what I mean yeah right so it's just like (laughs) <laughs> just, just like a collage of words put together. Yeah, right. So Judy and her partner, Beth, kind of decided something along the lines of, okay, press sensationalizes everything. We don't really know it's her. And maybe even if it was her, it might not be as bad as they're saying because they're being so dramatic. And maybe she was desperate for money and everyone makes mistakes and that was years ago and she served her time, blah, 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 blah. Like they justified it away. It's fine. Sure. And with that moment, everyone just got really busy and forgot about Burt Montoya. There was this huge review at the Volunteers of America and rumor was there was going to be deep cuts and funding and personnel. So Mm. it was all hands on deck to prepare for this review on top of everyone's never-ending workloads and there were a team of nurses who came to check on Bert weekly to monitor his chronic tuberculosis but kind of in a turn of good news in mid-June his symptoms were so mild they were basically undetectable so they decided to drop Bert down to yearly checkups so they had been coming constantly into the Mm. house and all of a sudden they weren't there anymore yeah So Bert Montoya was now in a brand new frontier. The people who had kept tabs on him for years at this point weren't in his life anymore. He was on psychiatric medication regularly for the first time in his life. He had money. And then he had this pretty intense relationship with Dorothea Puente. We don't really know truly what that relationship was. We do know that some people said he called her mama and that she fussed over him in a matronly way. She hugged him and did his hair and fattened him up and she really policed his behavior. She followed Uh him around and really told him where he could go and what he could do. Judy Moise later did wonder and worry if he was the one who did help her drag bodies out Mm. into the garden at night Mm. because he was easily influenced like that. Yeah. But there's no way to know whether or not that was true. Yeah. What we do know is that from the spring to the summer of 1988, Bert changed pretty drastically. In the beginning, Dorothea, for instance, paid a regular tab for Bert at a bar down the street for Bert to have a few burritos and beers every day, which he'd been totally destitute living in a detox center for years, spending a summer looking and smelling good, eating burritos and drinking beers on a tab probably felt pretty rad. And according to court transcripts, when he stuck to the tab in the beginning, he didn't get drunk. He was just vibing. Uh huh. But by the end of July, he was collecting cans around the neighborhood, hiding the money from Dorothea, and then showing up to the bar with the cash from the cans just to get wasted. Mm -hmm. On July 30th, folks down at the Volunteers of America Detox Center where Bert used to live were surprised to see Bert Montoya walk through the doors. Judy was gone, I believe, on a long vacation, but Bert's friend Bill Johnson was all ears. And Bert said he wanted to come back to the detox center. He wanted to get off his meds and he didn't want to live with Dorothea anymore. And Bill had heard a version of this before. Bert hated taking his meds. And Bill figured this whole thing had more to do with 
like taking his meds and being unhappy with Dorothea. Mm -hmm. Bill had seen Dorothea's place and thought Bert would be really hard pressed to find anything remotely as good in Sacramento. So he decided to do his old friend a favor and just give him a ride back to the boarding house. In the beginning of August, Bert got so drunk at his favorite burrito bar, he passed out and hit his head and had to be carried home to the boarding house. Dorothy was furious about the secret can cashing scheme and the extra drinking. So Bert was completely banned from going back to the bar and the tab was taken away. About a week and a half later, Bert was back at detox. And this time he was really withdrawn and he said nothing. He just took a mat like everyone else, found a spot on the concrete floor to spend the night and slept there. In the morning, without them really talking much, Bill Johnson once again drove him back to the boarding house. The summer of 1988 was a roller coaster for Judy Moyes. She survived the big review at Volunteers of America with flying colors and kept her job. She also found out she was the recipient of that year's Mental Health Association's Mental Health Worker of the Year Award, and she took a much-needed vacation. When Judy got back to the office, she got caught up with Bill Johnson, who mentioned Burt Montoya popping in and out of detox that summer and like how strange it was considering Dorothea Puente was so nice. I mean, she was so generous, Bill thought, you know, taking all of her tenants on a trip to Mexico. Like, what a lady, right? What? That's what Judy said. <laughs> she was like, what? She took everyone on a trip to Mexico? And then she got stress hives. <laughs> yeah, I know. And then Judy was like, what? Uh, okay. Well, I don't even think Bert has a passport. And then she was like, I haven't even spoken to Bert in months. So she asked Bill Johnson just to call over to the house, like the boarding house, whenever he had the chance to just check in and just chat with Bert, see how he's doing. So Bill called over to the boarding house and reported back and let her know. Apparently, Dorothea had taken Bert to visit her family in Guadalajara, and they had all loved him so much, they invited him to stay just a little longer. But he, she said, don't worry, Bert will be back in a week, no problem. So a week later on the dot, Judy called Dorothea herself, ready to speak with Bert personally. But he wasn't there. Dorothea was apologetic, but unfortunately, there was no phone number to reach him in Mexico. Not to worry, though. He was having the time of his life. By now, Judy was starting to fear the worst, right? Dorothea had lost Bert somewhere in Mexico during their trip, and now she was trying to cover for herself. So poor Bert was somewhere lost and alone, far away from home, off his meds, with no money. So Judy tried to play a little hardball, you know, reminding Dorothea Bert's SSI benefit check could be revoked if he stayed out of the country for longer than two weeks. You know, so Dorothea agreed completely, yes, absolutely, and promised Bert would be back the following week. But when the week passed and Judy called again, Dorothea had bad news. Bert had stayed in Guadalajara for a fiesta. He just couldn't miss, but he promised her he'd be back next week. <laughs> By the end of October, Bert was still in Mexico with Dorothea promising he'd be back by November 1st. So Judy knew things were getting bad, but she had no other choice but to wait for November 1st and hope for the best. Judy Moist and her partner Beth pulled up to the boarding house on November 1st in the VOA van. The blue and white Victorian was still covered in Halloween decorations. Dorothea met them at the door, embarrassed. She didn't know what happened. Bert was still in Mexico. So Judy snapped at this point and she threatened to contact authorities and report Bert to Social Security if she didn't put them in contact with Bert right then. And Dorothea sat in her lace covered parlor and started to cry. She told Judy she didn't want to lose Bert. She loved him like a son. She already had Christmas presents wrapped for him. And then Dorothea just stood up and made a decision. She told Judy she was just going to fly down and get him. It was obvious. 
Bert was confused and helpless, and he wasn't navigating the situation correctly. Dorothea was going to fly down to Mexico on Wednesday, pick up Bert herself, and fly them both back on Saturday. And Judy could come Monday, November 7th, to see him in person for the first time since June. And the plan gave Judy a huge sense of relief. It wasn't perfect. There were still questions, but Dorothea's explanations were starting to make sense again, right? Okay, good talk. Great. (laughs) So Monday, November 7th rolls around and Judy Moise headed into work with a good feeling, man. But (laughs) in some weird, completely unconnected bad omen, the night before, someone had broken in to the Volunteers of America offices, ate a bunch of food out of the fridge, and left murderous notes everywhere. Oh, my God. So when Judy came in, yeah, there was already this like really chaotic energy. And then Judy got a phone call that was just really not that great at all. And it began with a man mispronouncing his own name. Mm -hmm. So she picked up the phone and the first thing she hears is, hello, this is Michelle Obregon. I mean, Miguel. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Bert Montoya's brother-in-law. I'm calling from Shreveport, Utah, And I have Bert here with me. Well, first, I don't, it's horrible to laugh at that. It's, you know, whatever. Bert Montoya didn't have a brother-in-law. And also, there's no such thing as Shreveport, Utah. That place doesn't (laughs) exist. It's completely made up. Uh, So Judy responds with the first part. She says, no, Bert doesn't have a brother-in-law. And Michelle says, yes, he does. And we're very close. We've been close for years. And Judy's like, actually, no. I literally know his family because I found his birth certificate. Yeah. Like I know his parents. I mean, I know yes. he doesn't have a brother-in-law. And Michelle, having had enough shot back, uh, quote, well, you don't know everything. I came to California and picked Bert up on Saturday to bring him home with me. Now he's here with me and my wife. He's going to live with us in Utah. I'm calling because we want you to stop Bert's social security. We're a real proud family and we don't accept charity. So please just stop the checks. He went on to say, Bert's too sick to come to the phone. They don't have a phone number. His wife is sick too, so he has to go. And then he just hung up. (laughs) And as soon as Judy heard the receiver click, her partner Beth popped her head in the office and was like, girl, I just got this weird phone message. And Beth plays her message, and it starts with, this is Don Anthony. I mean, Michelle Oberjohn. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then it just keeps talking about the same, the same story about yeah. taking Bert to a made-up city in Utah. So obviously this is becoming a clown show. You know it. Judy knew it. We all know it, right? So she calls Dorothea and just flat out says, who is Michelle Ober- Obergon? And she hears this big long pause on the other end of the line. And finally, Dorothea intelligently replied, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) And exasperated, Judy describes the whole stupid, absurd situation. You know, you know, Dorothea, the guy, Michelle Obergon, you know, who I think is trying to say his name is Miguel Obergon, who also accidentally said his name is Don Anthony, the one's (laughs) pretending to be Bert's brother-in-law from a fake city in Utah, who just happened to pick him up the day before I was supposed to do a welfare check. Like, come on, man, get get your ass, Dorothea. (laughs) And Dorothea responded, oh, yeah, that's just what happened. (laughs) And she tells Judy she just forgot. She did go down to Mexico and pick Bert up like she said she would. Uh And they got back on Saturday. But yesterday on Lord's Day while she was at church, Bert's brother-in-law came down from Utah, packed him up, and took him away. And Dorothea was just shocked by the whole thing. It seemed pretty abrupt given Bert had just returned from Mexico. But that's just how it goes sometimes. Anyway, it's great that Bert's with family now. (laughs) And then then Judy at this point was like, girl, I'm calling the police. 
And she did. And that's when Judy took a beat. The onion layers started falling apart. Like, uh, you know, there's probably no brother-in-law in Utah, but actually there was also probably no utopian family in Guadalajara who loved Bert so much they kept him like a Christmas puppy. And it, maybe if that wasn't true, there was a chance there wasn't any trip to Mexico in the first place. And, you know... Judy's like, so what exactly are we talking about here, brain, right? Like, yeah, what yeah, are we yeah. saying? And then Judy's brain reminded her of all the red flags <laughs> and the warnings and the Sacramento Magazine article, and then things started looking very bleak. Officer Richard Ewing took Judy's statement at the Volunteers of America office that morning. She filled him in on everything she knew about Bert's suspicious trip to Mexico the mysterious brother-in-law and hostile phone calls and slippery Dorothea Puente and her ever-changing stories. And Judy specifically recommended the officers speak with the sober gambler downstairs, John Sharp. Mm -hmm. He'd be her best bet for a coherent version of what was happening in the house. After hanging up with Judy Moise, Dorothea Puente, thinking the exact same thing, made a mad dash downstairs to have a conversation with John Sharp. So while Officer Ewing drove to the boarding house on F Street, Dorothea quickly coached John Sharp on what to say about Bert Montoya's disappearance when police stopped by. Officer Ewing found Dorothea and her blue and white Victorian house just as charming as everyone else did. He sat in her sweet little parlor while Dorothea, cool as a cucumber, told him the entire story point by point, how she'd gone down to Mexico to pick up her favorite boarder. They'd return on Saturday and how he was whisked away by family on Sunday while she was at church. She caught him just at the end, moving his things into a red pickup with his brother-in-law. And she was so sorry that the people at the Volunteers of America were so upset, but they were being hysterical. People like Bert come and go. She had seen it many times. And Officer Ewing found that Judy Moist was right about the border in the downstairs flat. John Sharp was clear-headed and concise, and he corroborated Dorothea Puente's versions of events perfectly. John Sharp had seen Bert Montoya alive and well just the day before, loading his possessions into the back of a red pickup truck. So satisfied, Officer Ewing walked Dorothea back upstairs and came back downstairs just to say goodbye to John Sharp and shake his hand. And that's when John Sharp stuffed the sweaty envelope into the officer's hand. Yeah, she wants me to lie to you. The envelope with the message, she wants me to lie to you, scribbled on the back. Officer Ewing pulled John Sharp into his room and turned the volume up on his TV. And there the men made a plan to meet at a safe distance at an intersection outside the house for a private interview. From there, John Sharp went with Officer Ewing to speak with Judy Moise in person. And there, John Sharp unloaded everything he'd been holding in for months. John Sharp hadn't seen Bert Montoya since late August. Hired men had cleared out his room like months ago. And really, things had been getting weird at Dorothea Puentes for a long time. It wasn't just Bert. John Sharp talked about his alcoholic neighbor, the smell of death, the hours of carpet cleaning, the holes and trenches dug in the backyard by crews of prison inmates, the way Dorothea somehow seemed to have her tentacles wrapped around everyone's social security checks. And after spilling everything, John Sharp made his way quietly back to the house on F Street, slipped back into his room, and wedged his bedroom door shut with a chair before going to sleep. Yeah, I mean, this guy, he's like, man, everyone gets murdered in this house. Okay, bye, guys. I got to go catch some Z's. <laughs> Peace. <laughs> but even with John Sharp's account of things, no one was interested. Because... No one really thought what John Sharp said shouted Dorothea Puente is a murderer. Overall, Judy's co-workers thought she was being paranoid and way too fixated on this poor old landlady and that she was taking Bert Montoya's disappearance too personally. Even the detectives 
working Burt Montoy's missing persons case weren't returning Judy's calls. Mm-hmm. It was a nightmare. But they were all dumb and wrong. <laughs> and that's where we'll pick up next week, folks. More dumb and wrong just around the corner. Free next week, uh, but available now on Patreon and Spotify exclusive feeds. You know what I mean? Yeah, man. Damn, dumb and wrong. This is good. You're snowballing this one real hard. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Muriel did all the research, did all the writing. She then hosted this thing as if she wasn't even had a script. You know what I mean? People can't even believe that it's written. And everyone's like, Nick, you say you edit it. it you don't edit anything. Like, obviously, Muriel is just word perfect, yeah. you know, from start to finish for an hour and a half every damn episode. And to them, I say, I'm glad it sounds that way because I edited it painstakingly. Okay. And if you appreciate our efforts, people, <laughs> sign up for Patreon and Spotify. You know what I mean? Find us on social media. Send us an email. Send us a uh, five-star review on Apple. Hell yeah. You know what I mean? Do nice things for us. <laughs> Please. Okay. <laughs> uh, we love you very much. Anything else you want to say to these fine folk, Muriel? Yeah. Music's by Mario Castellini. Find him at Castellini Beats. Yep. Nick is super handsome right now, and his hair is really long. You guys, sometimes I wish you could see us. One day you will. <laughs> One day you will. <laughs> On the front page of a newspaper. Uh, We've been we'll criminals be the dead. whole time. Oh, okay. Dead? No, no, we won't be victims. We will have been perpetrators uh, of something, and everyone will say, hey, he was so nice. And then, but they'll be like, ah, oh, we listened to that episode, and he said, don't trust anyone because everyone's evil. They were really talking about themselves, yeah. you know? Just so many levels of irony that you don't know what's real and what's wrong. That's right. Okay. <laughs> Is that a good way to end the podcast? I, I really so. don't I was know. I'm going to start talking about how the cat bit me today. Okay. I think we're done. All right, we're done. Bye. Bye. <laughs>